Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Broken Banquet, a podcast about missions. We are your hosts, Will Bailey and Dr. Ashley Goad, and we are so glad that you have joined us for another conversation about the church and missions, about what healthy mission relationships can look like, and as we hear from others who have dedicated their lives in one way or another to mission work. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Will. How are you? Third time's the charm. (laughs) Let's hope so. Let's hope so. I like it when we have technical difficulties, because it's just fun like that. It just makes Uh it all cool. Yeah, especially when, you know, we're not pressed for time and have things that, you know, also need to be getting done. So yeah, perfect. Perfect. It's like a Monday, but it's Friday. It is. It is. You know, I missed all of our listeners on Monday. I We didn't have a new episode come out. We took the week off. It was nice to just catch up. I catched up on and listened to some of our episodes again. Oh, you know what I did? I went back and listened to our very first episode. And my, how we've grown, Will. My, how we've grown. Great content, but man, my, how we've grown. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I want to do that or not. I probably should. Yeah. Um, hey, how was Holy Week? It was good. It was a lot of hours and it was wonderful. And I got to see a lot of people that I had not seen in a while. It was like Mm -hmm, a big family mm -hmm. reunion. It was so good. But um, we had our last uh, Lent Bible study Wednesday. We had a Seder-like dinner on Thursday. And our, our pastor of discipleship, she just, she was so great. Stephanie, spent so much time putting this together and it was beautiful and meaningful and rich. I was so thankful that we did that. And Good Friday was beautiful. Uh, Silent Saturday was a really nice time to just rest with Chris and Molly. And and then Sunday, it was incredible. We had more people here on Sunday morning than I think that I've seen since before COVID. So it it was just incredible and so good to see so many people. And I hope they all come back this week. Surely they will. Of course they will. Yeah, yeah. That's how it works. Well, we did not see a whole lot of people during Holy Week, and that was kind of our our plan. We did have a family of howler monkeys who came and slept in the trees around our little camping area at the farm. So that was kind of fun. What fun Um, is that? I know. I know. It was really cool. But yeah, it was good. It was nice to just have some time to rest and did spend some time with Yolanda's family. And um, But it was good. It was a good, holy week. Mm, yeah. That's so and, good. And now I'm back in the office and it's kind of weird. You know, when teams are here, it's just so like all consuming. Everything we do revolves around having groups of, you know, 15 or 50 volunteers here. And so when we have weeks where there aren't volunteers, even though we still have things to do, I have a hard time just because I don't have like a set routine when Mm -hmm. there's not a team here. And so Mm -hmm. it's always a struggle for me to feel like I'm, am I where I'm supposed to be right now? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing right now? And And it's fine. It, you know, everything gets done, but it's just a weird sort of headspace for me. So Mm -hmm. we have teams coming back soon and I'm looking forward to that. Oh, good. Well, guess what I did last night? What did you do last night? I went and hung out with Stephen Curtis Chapman. Of course you did. <laughs> it was pretty great. You know, I, I went up to him and I was like, hey, Stephen, I'm Ashley. You know, we mm-hmm. talked a little bit. I, I We should hang out. We should hang out and uh, asked him to pray for our church. And he was like, the one with, like, like right there. And I was like, yeah, right there. And uh, that was nice. And uh, he, it was like a blast from the past. You know, I listened to a lot of Stephen Curtis Chapman in the nineties, <laughs> of course, 30 you know, something years ago. And uh, it was, it was so good to hear some of the songs that it, I love how music takes you back to where you were when you heard something. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I spent a lot of time last night just remembering Quaker Lake Camp and and High Point, North Carolina, and all the good things. Oh, it was so good. Well, Ashley, that sounds like a lot of fun. It was. It was. <laughs> you know what's even more fun? What's that? Today's guest interview. It is fantastic. 
Yeah, and I know that you've been looking forward to this. I know that that our guest today is somebody whose resources you've used um, in preparing folks for from your church um, in regards to you know understanding missions and servanthood and stuff. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Who did we talk to today? Let everybody know. We talked to a man named Dwayne Elmer, and he is the most quoted author slash researcher slash missionary in my dissertation. Uh (laughs) That's his claim to fame. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, he's written a trilogy of books and even more so than that. And he's worked all over the world, but especially in South Africa. And uh, I loved talking with Dwayne Elmer and especially hearing uh, how he put together uh, servanthood with humility, two things that we have talked so much about in previous episodes. Will, yeah. it, it was just one of my favorite episodes, one of my yeah. favorite interviews ever. Yeah. And this his book, Cross-Cultural Servanthood, which is one of his books it, that we referenced several times during the interview. It's just so good. I really, really enjoyed it. You know, I felt like there was a season where I just didn't enjoy reading anything that anybody was writing about missions. And that probably says more about me than it does about what people were writing about missions. But I just I just didn't enjoy reading that kind of stuff. And recently, recently, I've really come across some things that have been really edifying to me. And this was one of them. And I know I'll read it again. I've already been recommending it to people who are coming to to spend time with us in Costa Rica. And I'm so glad that, that he agreed to being on the podcast. You know, here we are once again, punching way above our weight, but he was very generous and gracious. And, and it, what a, what a fun interview. We could have talked to him forever, but friends, we we hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. So without further ado, Dwayne Elmer. So I wanted to start off by just saying, hello, how are you? <laughs> and thank you for being on this podcast. You, you've been someone, I've read three of your books. I'm sure there are more, but I've read three of them. And one of them became uh, the book that I give to all of our teams before we go and visit one of our family members across the world. So we try to read through it and discover what servanthood, what humility, what hospitality really does look like. But the more I was reading your books and going back, I wanted to know more about who you are. How did you get to the point of being Dwayne Elmer, author of a trilogy of cross-cultural books? Well, I grew up in rural southern Wisconsin. And recently we had a family reunion, and they I'm sort of the senior member there now because my mother just died a few months ago. And they asked me what it was like growing up in farming community. My parents were not farmers, but... I was with my uncles and my grandparents on farms all the time. Uh, One of the things about that background was there was an egalitarian value, egalitarian egalitarian spirit that resided in the community. And within that spirit, also a spirit of helping each other because there was always vulnerability on a farm. If you broke a leg, you couldn't milk your cows, you couldn't bring in your crops, you couldn't sow your crops, etc. So there was a spirit there of mutually respecting one another, uh, including hard work, honesty, and nobody was really above anybody else. And so I didn't realize it at the time, but those were values that I carried with me. And I took those with me when I went to school, eventually when we arrived in South Africa. And I think to some degree, uh, I, I hope at least, have stayed with me even to this day. Well, eventually, I found my um, I found my grounding in the uh, doctrine of the image of God, and um, it it came while I was at Michigan State, when I was taking this class on interpersonal relationships. I took the class because I knew it was something that I needed help in or with. And this fellow was a, uh, if, if you might remember, B.F. Skinner and his uh, book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, one of the best all-time selling books in history, just a terrible philosophy of life, a horrible philosophy of human beings. His whole philosophy was every human being you meet is a possible victim of your persuasion that you can utilize for your own benefit. 
And it was an incredibly depraved uh, view of life and a view of people. But I thought to myself, well, on what basis do I have a better view? And that's when I discovered the image of God, that we're all created in his image. And because of that, we are all worthy. Well, we all possess dignity. It's not something you give or take. It's something you have by divine endowment. And from that, I began to realize that every human being, and this was C.S. Lewis, and you might remember it from my book, Ashley. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that um, we are all, every human being we meet is an image bearer of God. And that in that meeting, we either nudge people towards eternal splendor and glory or towards eternal corruption and horror. There are no neutral relationships. There are no neutral greetings, etc. So all of life, if it's going to be an act of worship, it has to be this kind of respect and the affirming of one another's dignity as we meet and work with them. And that was uh, what gave what gave me meaning in looking back on my own agrarian history. Uh, that was what they practiced, having very little knowledge of it. And that was what has taken me uh, very much into the future. I was telling Ashley before we started that when I when I read Cross Cultural Servanthood, I really enjoyed it, but I also was really frustrated by it only because I didn't read it 20 years ago before I moved to Costa Rica. It would have been so helpful in framing what I was about to experience. There's so many lessons in here about service and humility. And the thing that I think I was thinking constantly while I was reading it was how to make this a part of teaching teams that are coming to work with us especially I think about young people. We have a lot of youth who come in the summertime and will spend a week with us. And it can be a really powerful, sometimes life-changing experience for them. And I think especially giving them some of the tools that are, that are in this book. So on the one hand, I'm thinking, so how do I get them to, to work through this stuff ahead of time? But then on the other hand, I was thinking, but really the being here for that week or 10 days that they're here is such an important part of the learning process and the journey too. It's not really a before and an after, or it's not really that the being here is the goal and the book prepares them. There's got to be a way that there's some sort of relationship between the two. And I'm curious to know, how do you see that dynamic with people being exposed to servanthood, maybe for the first time, really, you know, young people who are getting out of their comfort zones? What are the maybe the most important elements that you feel like should be present? What are the things that you think maybe are the most helpful things for me to be saying to them ahead of time? You know, prepare for this or prepare for this by keeping this in mind. Thank you very much for your wonderful comments. Uh, I had exactly the same feeling as I was writing it and wishing that I had formulated these things much earlier in my career. But I'm grateful that uh, you have those insights that you've come to appreciate, as I have. Um, That was a God thing more than almost anything else in my life, because I hate writing books. And I'm forced into it, and so I do it. Uh, So therefore, God gets all the credit, because if it were up to me, I wouldn't be doing these things. Hmm. I do like to talk about them. I hate sitting down and writing. I think that with pre-field people, you have to be a bit more concrete. Uh, One of the things that I do with my pre-field people when I was teaching at college level is I made the statement that the most important cross-cultural experience you're ever going to have, and maybe one of the more difficult or at least challenging ones, will be getting married. That's true. Yeah, everybody says that, and I say that. I say that very quickly because my wife was born a Shona person in Africa. She was born in a bush. Uh, she uh, grew up a Brit, a British culture in Zimbabwe. And then she, her mother was Canadian, therefore, you know, British background, and then became American. So I know cross-cultural marriages, but uh, this, of course, transcends what I'm saying now. Transcends all of that because uh, we each are a culture. But what happens is that they 
they get a sense of of um, the fact that what they're what you're accomplished trying to accomplish here actually not only has its benefits for the immediate but also for the long term in meeting people who are different from themselves long term in terms of marrying somebody and committing their life to somebody and realizing that the things that you've been communicating to them, the things that they've been reading, the things that they've been experiencing, we need to learn them, we need to name them, we need to talk about them so they become part of who we are, not just something that runs through our head and becomes registered there for uh, five minutes or five weeks, but something that says, this is what it means to be a human being in communication with other human beings. So we need to put it in their immediate context, but also in the context of the future is going to be influenced for good or for ill by everything that you're learning prior to coming to this short-term workshop, short-term experience, or through this short-term experience. Now, I don't mean to be hyperbolic about the nature of the short-term experience, but if it's properly done with proper pre-field kinds of things, proper in, in the experience kinds of debriefing, and then seeing the relationship of that to the future, including marriage, then we have a much more profound effect. And it's intentional, and I think it's the kind of thing then that God just multiplies in terms of a person's experience. So mm -hmm. let, me, let me buttress that with this statement. The most frequent piece of feedback that I get on the Cross-Cultural Servanthood book, mm -hmm. it, it saved my marriage. Wow. Wow. Because I go back again, the greatest cross-cultural experience we'll ever have is getting married. Mm -hmm. huh. So openness, acceptance, trust, I mean, that's it. Differences, yeah. right, wrong, or different. And when you ask the question, you know, are you normal? Well, if, I'm the, if I think I'm normal, that embedded in there is the idea that I'm the norm. Now, that's always unconscious. None of us are going to say, well, yeah, you know, I'm better than everybody. But at the unconscious level, we all tend to think that we're the norm. And therefore, I judge you using myself as a reference point. I'm the plumb line. Mm -hmm. And so we have to realize we have these kinds of tendencies that are born out of our tradition, out of our history, but also out of the fact that we're all born into sin. I have a question going on, piggybacking on what y'all said, and I don't want to interrupt your train of thought. Go ahead, because I'm going to be chewing on what you just said for the next probably five or 10 minutes on my own. So go ahead, Ashley, I need some time. <laughs> Would you say that no short-term mission trip should happen outside of a long-term partnership? Well, I used to read all the literature in that, and then I gave up. Okay, good, um, good, good, good. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think so. And, and here's the reason why. Um, if you're going to send... If you're going to send people into a short-term experience without proper preparation, without walking through the experience with them, talking with them individually and then in group meetings and letting them share their experiences with each other, and then with some kind of follow-up. I know most of the time it's not, not mm -hmm. easy. But if you're going to have the short-term trips where they just come and they do things and they go back, and none of this conversation, none of this reflective thought, by the way, my feeling these days is that reflective thought is not a very strong attribute in our, in our emerging <laughs> generations. Mm -hmm, okay, mm -hmm. so you have to bring reflective thought into the process, into the process of your community. And if you have that, then every short-term experience can, and I'm not being hyperbolic again, can be life-changing. It can be transformative because it starts a process with probably one or two new insights about who I am, what I want to be, and how I ought to be getting there. But if none of that happens, then a short-term experience is probably detrimental to the whole of the mission experience. Because what happens is you walk away from the experience and you go back to doing exactly what you were doing before. Furthermore, the people in the host culture pick that up, that you were there primarily in a tourist kind of thing, and, and having so much fun. And by the way, part of the experience that should be meaningful is having significant conversational contact with local people. Yeah. Some short-term trips, they hardly ever have a conversation, primarily because they don't know the language. 
So the leader of the group just says, well, we'll go down and they'll sort of transformation will happen because we're having this guy. But what kind of transformation? Well, we were impressed with how poor they were, or we were impressed with how little food they had, or the, the food that they ate, you can't believe it, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And there's nothing about that that's transformational. That is that that is peripheral observations that mean nothing for the for the the growth of the person or for the connectedness that we would hope for with the local people. So yes, uh, the answer is yes and no, and it all depends on. And what you were saying, Will, is how do you prepare people, and then how do you create the engagements when they're on site, so that they're. I would say if you can get them walking away from that with one or two things to chew on, you've done really well. But you have to be intentional about it. And the big piece of that is engaging with the people, even though there are language barriers. Get children to translate for you. They're always happy to do that. Right. (laughs) Yeah, as as a matter of fact, um, a couple of days ago, my eight-year-old daughter uh, translated for Ashley as she uh, <laughs> spent some time visiting with my mother-in-law. My wife is is from Costa Rica, so my mother-in-law is, is Costa Rican. Um, our daughter was born here and is bilingual, so she was translating for Ashley. Apparently now I owe her money because she was going to charge <laughs> Ashley an hourly rate, which Ashley hasn't paid her for yet. So now I'm the one that is in debt to my daughter. Um, yeah, yeah right? how quickly yeah. they learn. Yeah. It went yeah. from five to ten dollars very quickly. It did. It I did. see. Okay. Um, but you know what? I, what I'm thinking about, just because of what both of you have said, is how important it is that the the service opportunity, the trip, or or whatever the thing, isn't the thing. Like it, that can't be what it's about. It if it's about transformation in the participants on both sides, the the, the <clears throat> receiving yeah. community and the community that's going out to the ends of the earth, wherever that might be, if it's, if that's what's being emphasized, if that's what people are being prepared for, that helps us avoid the problem of the thing being the thing. Um, yeah. and, Good and, point. and like what Ashley said, with the, it being part of a long-term relationship or long-term vision, so the team that's here with her this week, they know that, it's not just about this week. It's about this relationship that we've had with their church for years and hope to continue to have with their church for years and the relationships that they have with this community. It's so much broader than that. And I think we need to be a part of things that aren't about us. I think that's good for us, you know, to de-emphasize how important we are, especially when it comes to service. Um, and so if it can be about something that's bigger and broader and this, this table that we've all been invited to, you know, this, this podcast we've, we've called the broken banquet because we believe that we have all been called and invited to a, a banquet table that is holy and perfect, but it has been totally distorted and corrupted practically. And so what are the things that we can do through church and mission and relationships and all of that to to repair to some degree some of the things that are broken about this banquet and i think one of those things is de-emphasizing how important i am and recognizing how important we are Um, can i interject at that point because i think you're really you're really uh talking about something that's very important and it helps me then answer with more specific what you were asking just prior. Um, It's been my opinion that you never do somebody greater honor than to ask them to teach you. Mm -hmm. Every time I walk into the classroom, I feel incredibly honored that these people should be willing to pay a lot of money, and they do, to listen to me talk, which I Mm -hmm. enjoy doing. I mean, what kind of a deal is that? (laughs) So I feel honored. All right. Now, if that's a given, or I think it is, then I think that one of the things that it would be important for you to do is to require your participants coming in the short term, and you as well, Ashley, and preparing them Mm -hmm. from your aim, what are the questions that we should be asking these people? And they form these questions in advance. Questions hijack the brain. Okay. Um, 
So anytime you ask somebody a question, there is an immediate focus on you and on the question and on the relationship. And if you're asking somebody a question, you honor them by saying, I have need of your help or your insight, or I'm interested in your insight on this. All of that is to honor the other person. And to your point, how do we pay proper respect and honor to them when we're there? And, and asking questions is, is one area. Now, the difficulty is that spontaneous questions don't work. Our mind doesn't work that way. Uh, we tried to get some things going in Africa where some women were getting together, particularly after the uh, South African the apartheid system broke down. But they ran out of questions, you know, out of questions about their children or what they were preparing or whatever. And all of a sudden, these groups, these multiracial groups fell apart because they didn't have any common shared experience. But if you create questions, you share vicarious experiences, or you read a book together and you discuss a book together. Creating the questions in advance, and they take it with them on a piece of paper, and you get a translator, and then you maybe ask the questions around the table, rather than having all the groups sitting together, which they can do for one meal a day or two, however you want. But if it's every meal, you're wasting some really great opportunities mm -hmm. to sit at food with another person. There's proverbs all over the world that have to do about the importance of food in, re in building relationships. You cannot sit at meat with your enemy is one that comes out of Southern Africa. To be at a banquet together shows solidarity that I am with you sharing a meal with you. We're sharing meat together. And it's very interesting that the first thing that we're going to do when we get into heaven is have a banquet with our Lord. Oh, yeah. We're going to share meat together. We're going to, or if you're a vegetarian, we're going to share food together, okay? Because of young people, I mean, if older people can't find it difficult to do this, how much more so younger people? So we have to prepare them for that. They, these prepared events and some quasi-structured events will probably be the things that they walk away with as memorable. That's what you want. If they're memorable, that's the beginning of transformation. And it's not that, not that we ate there. It's not that we ate with them. It's that, wow, did we discover what beautiful people they were? Oh, you're exactly right. I, I'm, I call myself a little socially awkward. My husband came from, you know, the social background of going to parties and all that Southern culture that you, that's very stereotypical. And so I find myself having to go with him to a lot of these different events. And so I have a friend that I call beforehand and we go over questions that I should have in my mind <laughs> so that when I'm in one-on-one -on -one or small group conversations that I can ask very intentional questions and it has been a lifesaver. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. That's terrific. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some of us have to do that. I mean, some people are naturals, but most, I'm, an, I'm more of an introvert. You know, I, I want to, when I'm done in the public sector, I want to hide somewhere. Uh, that, of course, is something, <laughs> that's something I, I really had to work on because it's very hard to be perceived as a servant if the first thing you do is hide from the people you're called to serve. I think I, I have a tendency to think about worship in the same way that you were describing this meal sharing. And partly because just from a logistical standpoint, on a week that I may have 60 volunteers here, I'm trying to imagine what a shared meal with also that many local people plus translators and, and trying to create that kind of interaction. Obviously, we can do that when Ashley comes with a group of six or seven, but there's sometimes when I think that could be a little unwieldy. But the first thing that we do when teams get here is we go to church, in a local church, mm -hmm. and, and sing songs together and pray together. And even though there's, because uh, we're in a Spanish-speaking country, a lot of the songs that are being sung are songs that people are familiar with from their home churches just because they're singing them in English and here we're singing them in Spanish. But I, I wonder if it's too much of a stretch to think that the same benefits that come from that sharing a meal, question and answer, kind of getting to know you environment can also be found in the worship environment where... Mm -hmm. We're still sharing with one another. 
Um, I think the local churches here do feel like we're honoring them by wanting to be a part of how they are worshiping God and learning how God reveals himself to them in this place. And I think there's also the doors are open for these volunteers to participate and to be a, a part of it, regardless of how much or little they actually understand. I, mm-hmm. One of the most profound worship experiences I've ever had in my life was I got to spend a summer in South Africa while I was in seminary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took me three days to get there. I was jet lagged out of my mind. I, I didn't know what planet I was on. They picked me up at the airport and we went straight to church. And, you know, during that one worship service, I'm pretty sure all 11 official languages were spoken at some point during the liturgy. I, I had no idea what was going on, but somehow I just knew somehow I'm at home here. Even though there's nothing mine in this place, Mm-hmm. I'm part of this. I'm included in this. And I've never forgotten that. And so it just, it was interesting. I guess just as you were talking about that sort of meal sharing and question asking scenario, it just reminded me of the way that that's the hopes that I have for worship experiences for the people that we bring into this community would sort of accomplish the same things. It would. And I would say maybe it could be either even more intentional in two ways. One is possibly arranging an after worship uh, small group time around, mm-hmm. you know, just some soft drinks or whatever. Uh, Hispanic people, as I understand them, at least are very sociable, as are Africans. They're, they're just delighted at every opportunity to sit down with, with uh, folks from outside their church community. Uh, the other thought I had was that, uh, by the way, thank you for thinking beyond, because that's absolutely correct. The other thought was that uh, during their work experience, because I'm assuming they'll have some activity, uh, I would give them, rather than focus on how much you can get done, focus on, on on maybe an hour in the morning when they sit down with a local person, another hour sometime in the afternoon, and they can sit down. So that relationship is perceived as an important part of their being there, not just how much they can get done. So many of these short-term groups are focused on getting it done. And actually that leaves the wrong message, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. Oh, I think when it, a question that I wanted to ask you uh, was, what are the top three things that are the most important things that you want people to hear? If you had to boil it down to three. The subconscious thing that I want them to hear, and maybe I should say conscious, but I, I, I want them to come away with the realization that the scripture speaks to all the experiences that we have. And even though the categories that I've developed are more out of social science, what I discovered at Michigan State was that they helped me understand scripture in some ways more than my theological professors did. I had good content from my theological professors, but Michigan State gave me categories and principles for how to function with the scriptures that all of a sudden I was able to see what they they really meant in life. So I I want people to see that scripture and life are integral and mutually reinforcing and life is unpacked there every time they read the scripture. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is the Imago Dei, that is the basis for how we treat one another, how we treat ourselves, how we see ourselves. So, you know, with the young people these days, the statistics right now are so many people are thinking about suicide, they're in depression, they're cutting themselves, etc. The, the image of God in you says that is not right to do because that's that's you're harming what God has made you to be and you're you're missing that and they need something to hang on to and that's one of the things they can hang on to is the fact that God loves them and He actually calls them uh, in Colossians I believe it is you are the, His workmanship created in Christ Jesus the word workmanship is poem in the Greek poema you are God's poem. And you're a beautiful work of art that the creator himself has brought to you. Let's celebrate. Uh, let's believe that. Another one is, uh, so the the, um, the first one is that scripture is integral to all of life. 
speaks to all of life, instructs us in all of life. The second one has to do with the Imago Dei, which means that all of life is intended to be sacred, especially in the way in which we see ourselves and each other, treat ourselves, treat each other, and the way in which we view the world and all of God's diversity in the world. The third thing is how do we serve God and serve one another? That, of course, all of these, in my way of thinking at least, pretty much consume every day. So those are the three. Uh, I mean, there are others. Uh, handling conflict is a big one. The whole doctrine of forgiveness is such an important one. But cross-cultural forgiveness is grossly misunderstood. I appreciate your emphasis on the Imagio Day. I, I believe that Henry Nowen taught that to me mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the best uh, through his book, Life of the Beloved and Mm -hmm. teaching me that I am a beloved child of God and that everyone around me is a beloved child of God. And when we begin seeing each other as such, um, the world changes because we Mm -hmm. treat each other with love and equality and kindness and integrity. And so I I appreciate you saying that. And that's another book that I give out to my uh, mission groups because it's so important that it's not just about going and being, but it's also connecting with Christ and connecting with others so that we can see the Christ through others, uh, Christ through others. So I appreciate you saying that. So I want to maybe change directions slightly. One of the things that, that we've talked about several times, uh, in, in other episodes with interviews we've done with missionaries who are serving in different places around the world is how important it is to go into the mission field with, you know, a humble spirit and a posture of learning. And there's a particular episode that you wrote about in cross-cultural servanthood. And um, Ashley and my wife both could confirm that I'm, I'm not a person who really shows a whole lot of emotion you know, naturally. But when you wrote about your wife and her interaction with the women in, I think it was Botswana, uh, Mozambique. Mozambique. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you describe that interaction between your wife and some professional, I believe, healthcare workers, and then these women who traditionally had taken on that role in the community, I almost cried while I was reading that because it was just such a beautiful example of what humility looks like. And how it just makes it so clear how crucial that element is in developing healthy relationships. One of the things that Ashley and I both recognize that needs to change in a lot of ways as far as Christian service and mission work and that kind of stuff is there's some, you know, there's some traditional mission models that just aren't healthy. How do we get people to listen to these kinds of conversations, read this kind of literature and receive it when so many of these ideas of heroes being sent out to save the world, it's so ingrained in a lot of mission models. What do you think is the biggest barrier between what's on the other side of that wall, these amazing examples of, of humility and openness and learning and all of that, how do we break free of that? You mentioned um, a very powerful illustration with Muriel and the birthing mothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were actually experiences like that that she had a number of the uh, countries. And she had the same posture. You could call it a strategy, but I call it a posture because it's a way in which she does things. It's the way in which she moves into people's lives. It's a way in which she builds trust. It's a way in which they trust her. So the first thing that she did in Mozambique with these birthing, was it the birthing mothers? Was that the case, I think, that mm-hmm. you mentioned? She asked questions. She asked questions of the, and she started out with the powerful people. These were the birthing mothers themselves. She talked to the moms. She talked to the health workers in the community. She talked to the local community officials in the local village, the chiefs, and then also in the local health department in the, in the capital city. She asked questions. She listened. When you listen to people, it automatically seems to give you the right then to speak yourself. 
Okay. In other words, you honor them and they welcome you to speak. So after all this listening, and by the way, one of the things that's not in the book is that she had to instruct her health community workers that were working for her not to say anything. I mean, zip your lip, don't talk. So when she did talk, and the, the women started telling them about their practices, which were harmful. They were causing children to be born with blindness, causing children to die before they're age five, et cetera, et cetera. The health workers were just so wanting to jump in and correct them. As soon as you correct somebody, you cause them to lose face, to be dishonored. And if, it's, if that's done in public at all, they, you're out. You're finished. Your influence is over. I don't care how long you stay there. Your influence is over. So my wife honored the uh, birthing mothers by working with them and saying, you can help these birthing mothers by doing these kinds of things. So what happens now is you deflect the honor, and this is what you're getting at, uh, Will. You deflect taking the honor yourself, and you let the people over here who are not Christians get the honor for telling these mothers what they ought to do. In turn, they honor you with more time, and you're accomplishing your goals and being there. Ultimately, God will get the honor, because at some point you'll say, well, you know, God gives us these principles. You, you honor the peoples, and you do that. You serve the people in a way that protects their integrity, protects their honor, protects their sense of self-respect and dignity, and God somehow honors himself through that in ways that you could never imagine. And it was, it's just beautiful the way it happens. And my wife was, you know, that was who she was. And it's so Christ-like. I'll give you another quick illustration. This is mine, and I'm going to make it very fast because I, I, I actually, I think I've told the story only maybe three times or so because it's about me. And one of the things I did right, everybody knows what I did wrong because it's recorded <laughs> in the book. Uh, but one of the things that uh, we, my wife and I, did right in South Africa, we were in Durban, as uh, we invited the, the host country people into our homes for evening meals with their families. Uh, and we did the right thing. It was the pastors first. You know, there's a hierarchy that you have to respect. And had wonderful times with them. And <clears throat> what appeared to be a small thing uh, to us, but a huge thing is that during apartheid, you, you couldn't do this. You weren't supposed to be doing it. But we had been there for two years. It seemed like it was a reasonable thing to do. And so I said, when you come, we want you to come to the front door. Don't come to the back door. We won't let you in. Because that was the way all during apartheid, you could only come to a white person's home coming through the back door, the place of servants, the place of, you know, the low, the low people. So we said you had to come through the, to the, the front door. And I remember them walking in our door and they're looking around and they're, they're just overwhelmed with the fact that, it's like one person says, I can't believe I'm in the home of a white person, actually. And so I says, well, I said, um, come on in and sit down. And then he sits on our, our couch and he's just kind of overcome with this whole thing. And then we sit at meat together. We share food. That's solidarity. We're friends. We're together. This is unity. This is how people that love each other, this is how they do it. Um, that did not go well with everybody. It, but I learned 10 years later, and by the way, I thought this was normal. I wasn't trying to be anything. I just thought this was normal. This is what you do. This is why we're here. So I wasn't thinking of myself in any terms other than this is how we ought to be. 10 years later, one of my uh, early students was pastor of, of a large church, and he says, uh, we have in our midst today somebody who changed the, the history of, of missionaries in South Africa. What he was referring to is inviting people to come through the front door, spend evenings mm -hmm. with them in fellowship around the table, and treating everybody with an, with an equality and a sense of mutual dignity and respect. So, you know, these are the kinds of things. I had no image that what I was doing was in any way special. But God just blossomed, nor did my wife. But God has a way of multiplying these things when we stumble into servanthood. Well, after a while, you start to be a little bit more intentional, but then you have to be careful because now you have to check your motivation. So sometimes mm -hmm. it's better to stumble. 
Well, and that gets to one of my favorite quotes in your book is hospitality is extending love to those we don't know and who may be of a different ethnic or cultural history. It's the idea of being gracious to all people, welcoming them into your presence and making them feel valued. And I can think of times around the world uh, being invited into so many different homes all over the globe and then in turn inviting those same people into my home and uh I think it's through these relationships that I have found the truest version of myself because mm -hmm. I'm able to see who I am through their eyes and I'm seeing them through Christ's eyes. And mm -hmm. I think it's a beautiful way that you describe that of, of making others feel valued, inviting them in through the front door, inviting them to sit at your table so that we can really all sit because everybody at Christ's banquet table has the same seat. Yeah, that, I, that's a wonderful uh, thought. Uh, it, it triggered something that I'll come back to an earlier uh, question that you had, Will. You know, Ashley, some of the things I just need to keep rereading that I wrote, <laughs> that's one of them. <laughs> uh, when you're welcoming people in uh, as a, a short term or when you're training the short termers to come, however it is, um, the more you can connect them with their world and these principles. Now that's always, not always easy, but one came to mind here. So go back and read the right, wrong difference part of the chapter and ask them in your home, what's right, what's wrong and what's different? Does, do your parents define wrong differently than you define wrong? Do you put some things in a difference category that they put in the wrong category? And let them struggle with that. Let them struggle in small groups with them. Give them a piece of paper with white, wrong, different, write those things down. Let them struggle in small groups. Um, I had a Sunday school class of juniors, uh, junior high schoolers. And most of the time I had them writing and talking to small groups in our Sunday school class. That is, I did relatively a small amount of talking. One of the, um, actually several, but one specifically came up to me in the last day that I was teaching the class for a year. And he said, you know, I've, I've learned more this year than all my years of Sunday school put together. And I says, why? He says, well, you got us to think. Now, when people are writing, they're thinking. When you're talking to them or when I'm talking to you, maybe as adults, we're doing more thinking. But I remember hearing a lot of things that just went you know, just pass right through the brain. When you write, you have to be intentional about your thoughts. You have to own your thoughts and then give them some time to share their thoughts. And all of a sudden, that is the beginning of transformation. So the right-wrong difference might be something that they can identify with right in their own home. Now you look for the right-wrong differences in the culture that they're in and say, is it right, is it wrong, or is it different? Yeah. Another, just a quick another one. What comes to mind when you hear the word church? Write as many things as you can. And then, um, then you say, okay, how many of those things can you prove from Scripture? And the answer is probably 10% out of whatever the list was. Most yeah. of them are just cultural differences. Now, how do we handle cultural differences? Most of the time, if I think of myself as the norm, if it's different, it's probably at best eh, suspicious or maybe just dumb or wrong or stupid. But they, in the culture, or my parents, they think it's right or wrong, as the case might be. So yeah. they need to be talking about these things, and then they just transfer that out of their home, their own personal life, or your school. If you go to school, you know, what kids think of this as wrong or right? How do you feel about it? Now look at it from the cultural standpoint, put on their lenses. Yeah, my favorite example of that that I've experienced personally was when I, after moving here and becoming a part of the church community here, one of the things I learned really quickly was that anyone, let me pause just for a second. We're in the tropics and it has just started raining really hard. So I don't know if you can hear that. I don't know if our listeners will be able to hear that. I'm going to keep talking as though you can't. And later on when I edit, we'll figure out what to do. So one of the things that I learned really quickly was that anyone who is involved in leading worship in any way, what is expected of them as far as dress, you know, attire goes is it, it's pretty formal. So 
for men, flip-flops, sandals, that's not acceptable. If you're going to be at the front of the church, if you're especially going to be up on the altar, you know, singing or preaching or whatever, you got to have shoes on. And that's mm-hmm. that's totally fine. There was a particular Sunday that I think my wife and I were heading off to the beach as soon as church was over. I wasn't supposed to be doing anything official in the church that day. So I had on a pair of sandals and the pastor decided that it would be a wonderful time to invite me to come to the front and to pray for the offering. And I was so uncomfortable because I had absorbed what they had taught me was expected, you know, in in worship there. Fast forward several years and I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip uh, to Cambodia And the first Sunday we were there, we got to the church. And what do you see outside of the front door of the church? A giant pile of shoes because they wouldn't imagine going into that sacred space with any kind of footwear because that's the dirtiest thing that you you wear. Mm -hmm. And so I wound up preaching several times on that trip barefooted on the altar, which would be totally unacceptable. in a church in Costa Rica. And so it just really, it showed me so clearly how many things there are that are, their cultural differences, not necessarily scriptural. And it's unfortunate, I think, how often those are the, actually the things that wind up causing trouble for us in churches. It's not the scripture we have trouble with. It's the culture we have trouble with. Um, But I really appreciate you sharing that. And I th- I've got a feeling we could probably just do this all afternoon, but that would be an abuse of your time, I'm sure. And you've been so generous already. And I'm really afraid that the harder it starts raining, the less we're going to be able to hear from one another. But maybe we can schedule a time to to continue this conversation or have another conversation mm-hmm. later on. Uh, I think mm-hmm. we would both love to do that. Uh, we appreciate what you have to offer the the two of us Mm -hmm. and and to our listeners. So thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much for making time for us. We really appreciate it. This was uh, several months coming. So I was very excited and eagerly awaiting. So thank you for your time. (laughs) Well, thank you folks for your wonderful ministry and for uh, welcoming me into your presence and into your ministries. You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table. All things are ready. Come to the feast.